Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, uh, just last week, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the United States. You can find the 15-minute introductory episode I recorded and posted as episode number 82 on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs to ask two questions. First, how is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And second, how will COVID-19 reframe healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. And again, you can find all of these episodes under the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Now, these are unprecedented times. So I hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they are adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. Now, in this episode, we are so incredibly fortunate to have two guests from the Providence healthcare system, Sarah Vallezi and Mariam Golami. Providence is a national not-for-profit Catholic health system comprised of 51 hospitals, as well as over 1,000 clinics, senior services, supportive housing, and numerous other health and educational services. The system and its partners employ more than 119,000 caregivers serving communities across seven states. Our guest, Sarah Vallezi, leads the development of the digital strategy as well as digital partnerships with health systems and technology companies, as well as new business commercialization, business development, and just overall digital thought leadership at Providence. Prior to her role at Providence, she worked for the Chartist Group, a healthcare management consulting firm, where she focused on enterprise strategic planning, payer provider partnerships, and the development of population health companies. Mariam Golami, our second guest here, is the Chief Product Officer for Digital Innovations at Providence. She leads the product development and operations team responsible for incubation, commercialization, and growth of the consumer digital products portfolio. She's also responsible for leading the applications of advanced technologies, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, to bring access and convenience to consumers, simplifying caregiving and increasing operational efficiencies. Prior to Providence, Mariam was the co-founder and CEO of Zoe Health, a startup which combined the power of human coaching and artificial intelligence to provide ongoing monitoring and health coaching to people with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension. My friends, Sarah and Mariam are just incredible. And I, I can't tell you how thrilling it was to be able to speak to them and hear the phenomenal work that they're doing. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. So good morning, Mariam, and good morning, Sarah. I just want to thank you for being on. I know this is super early in the morning, and you're beyond busy and have been for the past month. So let's jump in. Sarah, could you kick it off and, and maybe give us a sense of what's going on in the greater Seattle area in terms of right now at this moment? I know things are changing day by day, and things will change by the time this podcast is actually posted. But what's happening today? What are the numbers? What's the situation in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic there? 
So, you know, we've been at Providence across actually all of our markets, but in particular in Seattle, we're, we're located across seven states, but in particular in Seattle and just outside of Seattle at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Providence saw the first coronavirus patient back in February. And, uh, and so we have been under the leadership of Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, who is our chief clinical officer. We have been working hard on a multiple times per daily sort of cadence of emergency operations command meetings. We have been working closely as an organization to manage the situation as best we can, both internally as well as supporting our community partners. This has been a group effort between our clinical teams, all of our regions, our physician enterprise, the ambulatory care network, uh, certainly our supply chain and sourcing folks who have been working around the clock and our staffing folks and of course our frontline caregivers who have been you know just going above and beyond anybody could ever expect to support our patients uh, as of today I don't have the exact numbers, but we have several hundred PUI and positive patients across our markets, um, across each of our regions and in our hospitals. So the teams are working hard to uh, to provide them with the best care, ensure that our caregivers are safe um, in the middle of all this, mm-hmm. and to kind of, from our perspective as a digital team and with our uh, colleagues in our IS team, our information services team, uh, working to kind of enable them with digital and technology in the best way that we can to support their efforts as well. Thank you for that uh, information and that update. And again, you all are experts and leaders, and I would say knowing you and your work, superstars in digital innovation. And so that's what we're going to focus on in this conversation. So how how is COVID-19 changed already the way that you are delivering care? And again, I know I just want to put in this caveat that no matter how soon I post this podcast, it's going to be outdated because I know you're changing almost hour by hour and definitely day by day. So I just want to put that caveat in there. But how has it already changed the way you're delivering care from your vantage point? Absolutely. So I will, I'll just add this small note, which is we have in a very difficult time, um, it's providential that a lot of investments that we've made in support of our caregivers and our um, patients um, over the last several years are have become really material and useful um, in fighting this pandemic. And so things have changed around that, but it, we're using a lot of uh, investments that we've already made. Um, and I'll give you a quick overview of the things that we've done on the digital side of things to address this and then hand it over to Mariam for a deeper dive on several of those buckets. We had made some investments in chatbot technology, both in terms of assessment as well as FAQs. So uh, we have a chatbot called Grace that we had previously used for other use cases and have adapted for uh, COVID-19 that Mariam can talk about. Mariam's team has also made significant investments in virtual visits, and we're referring to like video visits that has been absolutely tremendous in its ability to serve thousands of patients at scale. Another area where we've done quite a bit of work is in home monitoring and essentially for patients that 
we can't keep in our facilities, but they do require monitoring their clinical condition. We're able to do that in their homes, which has been, again, a real force multiplier in terms of our ability to get scale and care for people, a broader um, population and scope of folks than we otherwise would be. We've done an unprecedented amount of work in uh, sort of putting together a consumer hub, if you will, like a microsite with a lot of content and information. And that's actually where the bot lives. So getting information out there, raising public awareness, getting folks the resources that they need. And we've also done a lot of work around some important causes like our 100 million mask challenge to get our caregivers covered with PPE um, and some work around raising money for the community and our community partners in managing this crisis as well. And what's interesting about all of that is not just the that we're doing all of those things, but we've also done all of them in a matter of weeks. So every all of what we just talked about has ramped up tremendously, leveraging those existing resources that we had and the investments that we had made and the teams that folks like Mariam have been leading for a, a couple years. And we have now been able to leverage those and pivot them to focus on something much more immediate. So um, it's a lot of activity in a very short amount of time. And I'll hand it over to Mariam so she can talk more about the new work that we've been doing on assessment, triage, and virtual visits. Great. Can, and can I interject a question? You know, what's really interesting is that whereas I would say a, a large percentage, if not the vast majority of hospital systems across the country are trying to create these de novo, the virtual visits, the home monitoring, a hospital at home, consumer hubs, things like that, you already had this in place and so it just seems like it's a different activity that you're adjusting it or pivoting it or ramping it up, but it was there before. And so I'd love for you to speak to that. And I'm particularly interested in what percentage of your visits do you guesstimate were happening virtually before and what percentage literally today are happening virtually? I think Mariam can speak to those really well, in particular around what we call express care. Um, and express care is our platform for same-day care, so especially like video visits that in a pre-COVID world were really focused on, I think I have a sinus infection or the flu or a rash on my arm, you know, those kinds of things. Mariam can definitely speak to express care as a, sort of a before and after, I think is a very interesting contrast. And it'll go into kind of the next set of conversations around how do we think this will reframe and transform healthcare in general. But I'll let, I'll let Miriam speak to that. Sure. Yeah. So like you said, you know, we have been working on these uh, digital platforms and solutions for a while. Uh, we were not expecting the crisis time, but it, it actually happened to be very helpful and useful. So to give you an idea, you asked about our virtual visit platform. Uh, like Sarah mentioned, we have been working on a same-day care platform called DexCare uh, that empowers um, our business express care and that allows you to see a doctor as conveniently and as quickly as possible. So before COVID-19, we had uh, retail clinics um, across the states we cover, and also we let patients ask a doctor 
to come to their home. And additionally, we had virtual visits uh, available for patients. Of course, with COVID-19 and the need for social distancing and uh, also the fact that many clinics had to close, we had to uh, quickly scale this uh, solution and allow many patients uh, do video visits instead of going to a, to a clinic. So what has changed is that the same daycare platform that we had it, it could serve our patients in person or virtually. Now, many of those visits have shifted to be uh, virtual, which is the right thing to do. To just give you an idea, in 23 days in March, we have served more virtual visits than we served uh, in the entire 2019. So the volume of our virtual visit has increased uh, more than 10x. And the demands for actually for the platform has been to, uh, to some degree for me as a product person where I want to make sure that we are doing the right thing uh, for our consumers and for our caregivers. To some degree, it became overwhelming at the beginning. Our platform, Dexcare, empowers Providence, but we also just enable another health system to, uh, to use the platform. Sorry, I can speak more to this part, but we have many other health systems who are interested in uh, leveraging uh, the virtual visit platform we have. Uh, and I think from my perspective, the reason that's been successful so far is one is that we have a team that been dedicated to this solution for a while. And the other thing is that we have been working with our clinical folks, especially in the ambulatory care network team, very closely in scaling the platform. So literally, uh, they're part of our team. We work with them on a daily basis on uh, evolving the platform. Uh, we used to do weekly deployments and releases, and now it, it's daily that we are doing deployment. We are adding new functionalities to, to serve the needs um, so that's on the virtual side. Uh, Sarah, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the demand that we have had from other entities for a virtual platform. Before we jump there, I do want to just point out, so what I heard you say was that you've seen more virtual visits in the past three weeks in March of 2020 than you did in the entire year of 2019, which is just shocking and remarkable. And do you have a rough number of how many virtual visits you've seen in the last three weeks? Sure. I, I have the rough number and <laughs> I think I can share, right, Sora? <laughs> I think so. This may be one of those things where the number will have changed dramatically oh, yeah. in the next yeah. couple of days. So yeah. we'll share it and if possible, we may need to, you Adjust. know. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. So no we way. have had over 12,000 virtual visits. And to give you an idea, initially there were a few days where uh, it was overwhelming because we had people waiting in our, we call it virtual waiting room, but we had uh, over 300 people waiting in, in, in the virtual waiting room. And what I told him is that we have always been an on-demand virtual video platform, but now it's becoming like being a virtual urgent care for the consumers. And when I tell you that we had so many people waiting because it's not about just what we have built, it's also about our clinical team, which they have done a fantastic job, uh, but for them to also ramp up, bring more providers on board. And as mm -hmm. that was happening for us, also the need for building new functionalities came uh, because now you have to bring providers uh, on board really quickly. Uh, how do you train them? How do you make the technology super easy for them? It's interesting. We have even encountered situations where 
the caregivers are are more stressed. So for them, you know, interacting with the technology is is harder. It's just yet another thing that they need to do. So I actually put a team together where they just actually help these caregivers. They train them or they deal with their issues if they don't know how to set up their camera or, you know, they have tech issues. It's not part of the platform itself, but we saw it as something essential that we need to do in this period of time. Yeah, these details are super helpful to understand because the stuff doesn't just happen. It requires people who are skilled in this. It requires the kind of interaction between the digital technologists and the clinicians and the rapid training you're talking about. And again, I think your point is so well taken in a time when the clinicians are so stressed and called and pulled in a completely unprecedented way. Now they've got this added job to actually learn quickly and adapt to a whole new technology that's being used in a whole new way. And I'm curious, one of the things I've always respected about Providence is your foresight and the commitment you have to the digital space and to digital innovation and virtual. I'm just curious if you could share this again in rough numbers, but the amount of resource you have to bear here, I mean, how many folks do you have on your digital innovation team? You know, how many experts and people and staff do you have doing this innovation work and doing this training and adapting and all that? Sure. Um, I'll talk about the product development team, who basically is a team of um, software engineers. Uh, That's my team, software engineers, um, designers, product managers, technical program managers, and also a team that focuses on customer success and product operations. Uh, We're about 100 people. We work on uh, different products and verticals, uh, but I will tell you that when the COVID-19 happened about three, four weeks ago, I basically told him that we would need to pause uh, other things if necessary and focus on COVID-19 and it's the highest priority for us. Right now, at least 80% of my team is focused on COVID-19. And frankly, what has happened is that People do whatever they need to do. It's not about your function. It's not about your role. Um, I have people who are product managers, but I needed them to do testing. So they have done testing. We work very long hours to get our bot triage tool out to make sure that virtual platform is going to work a scale. You know, we, we were checking on the numbers, what's happening uh, literally on minute by minute. So in order to help the team and make sure that, you know, they can function well, I also had to say, okay, we need to come up with a plan where people who are exhausted can take a break mm-hmm. and then I bring a new group. So that's how I have sort of organized the task force. Right. And right now they have been focused on virtual visits that have been focused on the assessment tool. And we also have a patient engagement platform that right now is our mobile app, Health Connect. Part of the team is also focusing on that and sort of looking ahead and saying, okay, so now that this coronavirus has been around, people have anxiety, what are the next steps that we need to do through our patient engagement platform um, to help them? And honestly, part of it also, we are looking ahead and say, what happens after this? How are the trends are going to change for consumers? And how do we make sure that we are ready post-COVID-19? I don't know how long it's going to last, but I tell team that right after two months, if, if it's two months more, what do consumers want? So let's make sure that we are ready for that as well. You know, speaking to you, I'm just appreciating the level of marketing product development expertise and, of course, the technical expertise that you and your team are bringing to bear here. It's it's really quite remarkable. You mentioned a moment ago, so many questions came up for me as I'm listening to you. 
And I do want to go back to Sarah and ask specifically. So Mariam has a team of 100, which is amazing and remarkable and probably quite unusual. But there's a much larger team that you also have, Sarah, that's surrounding you and your colleagues and Aaron Martin and others. And just to give a quick number, how many more people do you have working in this area? Yeah, our overall digital team at Providence that Aaron Martin has oversight over is 200 people. And that includes three different functional areas, digital, of which Mariam and I are both a part, uh, marketing. So all of our you know patient consumer facing marketing activities, which have pivoted greatly to, again, providing information, a lot of public awareness, a lot of uh, working very closely hand in hand with the regions and our communications team. And then uh, the last group is Providence Ventures, uh, which is our team of investment professionals that makes investments in healthcare IT, tech-enabled services, and digital companies. And, mm-hmm. and we've all been working very closely together in this effort. Another area that we've really focused on is, as you can imagine, the venture community and the companies that are out there have all responded. This has been sort of an opportunity for the best to come out in, in folks. And so a lot of companies, both those that are in our portfolio from a venture standpoint, as well as others that are just out, some with whom we partner just on a strategic basis, some which we haven't worked with yet. Everybody's trying to take some part of this problem and try to solve it based in in the best way that they know how. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for instance, my team and, and ventures, we've come together to essentially understand what the major problems are, what the problem areas and the spaces look like, and begin to map them to companies that are out there that are solving these problems. And then also to Mariam's point, think about what does the post-COVID world look like? Mm -hmm. Um, How is that going to change? And what do we need to do to proactively position ourselves to address those changes? The adoption of virtual is a major shift that, you know, we've been talking about virtual for years and years and there have been challenges on the regulatory side and on the payment side. And we anticipate regulatory and payment, but also in terms of patient and consumer behavior. We anticipate that that will likely change given that, especially on the patient side of things, folks will now have experienced something and you know experienced the ease in dealing with virtual visits, for instance. And that will provide a major reframing for them in terms of how they access care in the future. So that's one example, but we anticipate there will be others Mm -hmm. that we need to start thinking about and positioning ourselves to respond to patient and caregiver and consumer and all these other needs that are going to be happening in the post-COVID world. Yeah. Let me ask you about that. If you could give, again, a guesstimate in terms of what percentage of Providence's patients were being seen virtually pre-COVID and what percentage do you think will be seen virtually post-COVID? What do you think those numbers would be? And I know this is just a big guess. Especially the post-COVID is a big guess. Um, one, One other piece of thing I will add. So, the work that Mariam and team have done on express care was really focused on the same day use case. Mm-hmm. Our physician enterprise and IS colleagues have also done a tremendous amount of work in the context of COVID to make virtual visits available for 
other kinds of use cases like patients who need their diabetes managed still need care now, right? That doesn't stop. And so those teams have come together in a tremendous effort and amount of work to bring our providers, our provider network online so that they can do virtual visits. That was actually not the case before. So there was very Mm -hmm. limited virtual. There was some in certain specialties, um, in particular telebehavioral health, but but there was limited virtual visit in our core practices prior to this. The majority of telehealth that we did was acute telehealth and tele-ICU, tele-hospitalist, you know, telepsychiatry, and then the outpatient telebehavioral health and some small regional programs that we had. What's happening now is that we had almost 8,000 providers that got onboarded to do virtual visits for other use cases. And that is a tremendous transformation. It's too soon to tell as to like what the numbers will look like, but that's the direction that we've uh, headed in. So it sounds like, and tell me if this is the right picture, it sounds like your primary care doctors and your specialists who are doing chronic disease management type of visits, they've now been put onto your virtual care platform And so they are now converting their in-person visits or have already converted their in-person visits to virtual visits. Is that the case? It's not the platform that we built for DexCare or ExpressCare, as Mariam was describing. It's a different platform. But yes, so they are doing visits via, you know, telephonically or via virtual visits now. So primary care and specialists are now connected to a video platform to do do visits that way. Yes. 8,000 doctors. Almost 8,000, yep. That's just the start. We are 8,000. We just brought up 8,000 providers, but the number may increase, so. And the Express Care, that was sort of your urgent care, same-day on-demand platform virtual, or is that also, you're saying that you're now pivoting that to actually be accommodating for not just on-demand urgent care type visits, but also for chronic disease management? Am I understanding that? We are still focusing on same-day care type of problems. Uh, What Sarah mentioned is when our physicians need to follow up with their patients or if they have scheduled appointments, and given that it doesn't make sense to see people in person, uh, now they can actually do it virtually through the uh, solutions that are integrated with our EPIC platform. That's a different platform, and the use case is actually different as well. Uh, Many of those visits are scheduled and they're follow-up visits. The DexCare or ExpressCare platform is meant to be open for any patient, whether they are existing or new. And actually a large uh, number of these consumers are are new patients. They come to the platform, might be their first time, and they're able to do a virtual visit. Uh, Versus, I would say, our primary care doctors are more focused on uh, patients that they already have. So you're converting both urgent care, express care, as well as primary specialty care to virtual or video. Now, with the express care, I'm assuming that's also a video functionality too. Yeah, absolutely. So our virtual platform, you can chat with the patients or you can do video. Uh, The way the flow works today is that when a patient comes to our virtual waiting room, they start chatting with what we call a patient representative. We have automated some of those workflows where we get the patient information, but uh, a patient representative does an assessment and then the patient is handed off to to a provider. 
uh, the platform actually has the capability to allow chat-based care. If somebody doesn't want to do video and they just want to talk to their provider through chat is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, that workflow is possible through the, the platform, but we are working with our clinicians and operations team to see if it makes sense to bring that to the picture. Uh, so video definitely is available. And in fact, I would say one of the things that we learned that makes me so proud of our team is our video platform, video functionality has been able to scale uh, pretty well compared to some right. other platforms right. that are out there. And I think that's, you know, when we talked about the number of people, but also the amount of how close we work with our operation team and clinicians team, I think that has helped us to scale it really well. So Sara mentioned the bot assessment tool. Mm-hmm. Um, the bot actually is getting more and more sophisticated. And prior even to COVID-19, we uh, had built Grace, which is a chatbot, but really the goal of Grace was always to navigate patients to the right modality of care based on their symptoms, based on their location and the availability that we have. And today, the the COVID-19 bot assessment tool that we put together quickly, uh, it kind of does a similar thing. It asks some questions to see which category you fall into. Do do you need to be tested? Is it a home monitoring? Do you need to see a doctor right away? And then from there, we basically look at the various solutions, uh, the portfolio of products and solutions that we have, uh, and we try to route the patients to the right modality of care. So some of that, it makes sense to go to our same-day care and express care, given the scope of services. Some of them may make sense to contact their primary care doctor. We are actually working on the next iterations where the bot can get more sophisticated and do a better job of routing. Sara mentioned that things are moving really fast. So in our case, what's been really interesting is that our triage bot, we, we launched on March 5th uh, after three days of nonstop work. And since then, we have had uh, multiple updates uh, to the bot, to the workflow. We added frequently asked questions. So it's evolving uh, pretty quickly. Mariam, you're just incredible, you and your team. And I'm just so in awe of your expertise. I mean, this is so sophisticated in terms of the technology and how rapidly you're iterating. And also, I just want to emphasize and underscore how you're recognizing that customer needs and customer expectations are going to shift rapidly in the progression of this pandemic and the post-pandemic soon enough. And I think that's such a sophisticated understanding and application of, of what you're doing. I know we, to end quickly, which is two questions. One is around your home monitoring. And I'm curious, what are you doing now? Do you have hospital at home and other things like that? And I suspect, again, for the future, once the cat's out of the bag with this, once we realize we can do this, once patients realize this, I suspect we're going to see in the future, and I'm curious as to what you think, home monitoring and home at hospital will just explode. Whereas before, Sarah, as you were saying, regulations and payment were limited. I can't imagine that we're going to put that back in the bag. And the other issue, Mariam, you mentioned something which I think has been largely ignored. At least I haven't heard a lot of discussion about it across the country, which is a focus on behavioral health. You mentioned anxiety. And again, now with COVID, I haven't seen these numbers, but I just have to believe there's an explosion 
of social isolation, of depression, of anxiety, of other negative impacts on the social determinants of health, like food insecurity, income, of course, transportation issues, uh, basic supplies at home, especially in the vulnerable, the elderly, and the socioeconomically uh, vulnerable folks. So I know you're just so smart and so sophisticated. And I know you're thinking about these things because you said it, but maybe start out with the home monitoring and then talk about the social determinants of health and behavioral health. Sure. And I can speak to both of those quickly. On home monitoring, the idea has been that for subacute patients who are either PUI or have tested positive, but are not symptomatic enough to be hospitalized at this point, that we want to be able to monitor their condition. So in that particular case, we actually partnered with an organization called Twistle and have been using that to prompt our patients who have come in and you know we've supplied them with a thermometer and a pulse oximeter and we then send them home and ask them to three times a day input their data and report their temperature their blood oxygen saturation as well as other questions like is your shortness of breath the same worse or better than it was before so that information gets sent to a pool of tele icu providers who are managing that patient population i believe today we are at over 400 patients being monitored and that's in washington state alone and it has been such a boon for our providers who were previously just picking up the phone and calling every single one of their patients. So this way, we're really able to, again, achieve some of that scale. We learned some really interesting lessons about making it very easy for patients to input their data and not requiring them to log in or do something sophisticated. When patients aren't feeling well, they're not going to do those kinds of activities. So so we've made it just really easy for them to respond just by a simple prompt and a text message that takes them to a little web form and they can and fill it out. So that was another effort that we stood up um, in a matter of days. We started on Friday the 13th and we're up and running by Tuesday and we're um, Epic integrated by Thursday. So that was a huge partnership between our telehealth team, our IS team, Twistle, and the Digital Innovation Group at Providence. So we are continuing to roll that out into other states, um, Oregon and California and Alaska. It's just been a huge lift for our tele-ICU providers to, to be able to do that. On the behavioral health front, our digital experience team they also have stood up a behavioral health resource for our patients and for our caregivers and their families mm. to be able to access behavioral health resources, things like behavioral health concierge where caregivers can talk with a therapist free of charge. The digital team had done an assessment of various computerized cognitive behavioral therapy tools that we are making available to all caregivers and their families. And we're working really hard to make it available to all of our patients as well. We started with making it available to our patients or our primary care patients in Oregon. So we're continuing to push on that with this kind of acknowledgement that stress and anxiety and depression are going to be very pronounced in the next, you know, six to eight weeks at a minimum. And there will be an aftermath of all this and that we want to provide that resilience and support and those kinds of, you know, therapeutic kinds of efforts to as many people as we can. 
Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. And I so appreciate you raising the issue of the providers and other caregivers and staff who are under tremendous pressure and offering those services to them. So I just want to say thank you, both of you. I know you've got to run and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speaking with us as you're so busy right now. Mariam, just so impressed with you and your team and Sarah, as always, just uh, so grateful and so impressed with your work. Any final thoughts or comments? None from me. I think we're just, we're all in this together and we're trying to get through it and learn some lessons, hopefully. Yeah, I would say we are doing everything we can to help our community and our patients. And when I say ours, I mean every patient. I think even globally, how we can enable all these patients out there and help the communities. Again, I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing. And, you know, you and your organization are just so inspiring as you have been for the past many years. So again, thank you and hope to be in touch with you and let me know if there's anything I could do to support you. Thank you. Thanks, Sev. Take care, Sarah. Take care, Maria. So folks, this was an interview recorded just last week with Sarah Vallezzi and Mariam Golami of Providence. I hope you've benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. You know, in these times especially, we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please take care of yourself and please share this podcast with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.